0: Swept me off my feet. You erased my history. You took all of me and
1: filled it up with you. Hello. This is Let's Talk About It Conversations with Survivors of Intimate Partner Abuse. And I am the host, Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices a non organization committed to breaking the silence, town by town, conversation by conversation, all over Maine. We are the group behind the huge Let's Talk About It downtown window banners that are touring the state, featuring my portraits of 27 and counting Maine survivors, a defining quote about the abuse, plus the local domestic violence hotline number. Today, we are talking about emotional abuse with Carissa, Lindsay, and Molly. Each got in touch with me separately about sharing their stories. Come to find out, Lindsay and Molly have been friends for a very long time. But he never hit me is something I hear over and over again. Women say it like they are apologizing for categorizing as abuse the devastation visited on them by someone they loved. When there are bruises, it is easier to recognize as abuse. Two years after my own divorce, a Prince Charming swept me off my feet. Ironically, just as I was pulling together a component of the launch exhibit of Finding Our Voices, a vase with a dozen red roses, and interspersed among the roses, a dozen red flags on sticks, with messages on them of what to beware of during the courting phase. And one of the warning messages was, sweeps you off your feet. Two months into this relationship, I called the domestic violence hotline, the same one next step in Ellsworth that had helped me so much to process 29 years of being shoved and punched and strangled and raped by my husband. This time, I ran down for the advocate the whole long story of this short relationship Three exhilarating fairy tale weeks, three very confusing weeks, and the couple of days that had me crying like a baby. And I asked if it was abuse. The advocate said it didn't fit the standard definition of abuse, but that I should follow my instincts in feeling like I needed to end the relationship. She basically told me love should feel good, which is what 18 year old Lyra Kalagian of Camden, our six week Finding Our Voices Apprentice, came up with for a tagline for her Teen Dating Abuse Project. If it doesn't feel good, something is wrong. It's just that with no bruises, it's hard to pinpoint what is wrong. If there are no ears to hear, our voices don't go far. So thank you for listening. And now, let's talk about it. What I'm, I'm interested in talking about today is emotional abuse and how damaging that can be, and how that is absolutely abuse of the worst kind, and of a very serious kind. A little short introduction of you to start with. My name is Lindsay,
2: and I'm 45, and I am a nurse and a writer. I was in an abusive marriage and relationship for seven years in the relationship, and then for another five years, we continued in the court system.
3: I'm Molly. I'm 34. I'm a boat captain and a teacher, and I am in the process of ending an eight-year marriage. With two years previous to the marriage,
4: I'm Carissa. I'm 47, and I do marketing. I am just kind of coming out of abuse. I feel like it's it's something I lived with for. A long time, whether it was childhood and then jumping into a 23-year marriage relationship that turned out to be pretty abusive and ended very badly, and then jumping into this next relationship, which was emotional, which, as Patricia said, I felt was the worst. I could tell horrible stories about some of the other, but the emotional abuse is really what has changed me. I mean, some of it I like how I've changed in the process of thinking and has helped me wake up, but it was quite a process to get to where I am now because it's been about eight months since the actual end of that relationship. And I feel like the amount of growth that I've done is tremendous.
3: I feel that too. I'm sort of a similar timeline. It's a tricky thing because I don't want to be grateful for the abuse or like, give someone that is treating me terribly still credit, but I also, being that I am the kind of person that really does look for the good in people and the good in situations, I am going to try and hold that positive of my own growth and consciousness in the front.
4: Part of being a strong woman is pretending to be a strong woman, (laughs) and so admitting... (laughs) that you allowed this to happen to you is, you know, I hear that all the time when, when I do tell it to a friend, you know, my closest friends didn't know about my history of abuse, And they're like, you, you know, yeah. it to anyone uh-huh. and duped, no matter how smart we are, how
1: strong we are, how strong we appear. When I had my show in Castine, uh, and this woman that I've known for 30 years, and I pointed out that I'm in the exhibit too. She hadn't known that. And she looked at me and she's like, you, but Patricia, you're so smart. Yeah. Right. I've talked to so many women now who are in this. And the one thing that everyone has in common is they're nice people. They've got good hearts. That is the one thing. Yeah, That's it. They find these women who are just really kind, you know, that's I think what we all have in common. That's what I've seen. We have big hearts. They have no heart. And that's how we come together. I
3: broke the news to a an very old friend of mine a few weeks ago. I hadn't talked with him in about a year. And he was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry to hear all this. This is awful. How did you get in there? I was like, I don't know, Chase. I mean, you know me. I don't give up on people. Right? I definitely relate to that. And. It's
4: part of not giving up on people and part of not wanting to accept failure failure in a relationship, failure at whatever it is it could be work, you know, that personality type that you just you're a fixer, you're a doer,
1: or it's like there's a lot at stake in this one. Like maybe people have already had two divorces and they're you know embarrassed or something, or it's a time of your life where you just really want to settle down with someone, you really want it to work. And you you know, that could be at two circumstances.
4: Well, you're also in love with what they sold you in the beginning and you keep waiting for that person to come back. So you accept the abuse that's happening during the whole process because you're waiting for that person that was great to come back. It's like what you see in the movies. He or she is making the other one crazy. And that's what you feel like you're living and you keep constantly going, is that, is that what happened? You keep having to try to prove things, which makes you nuts because you're never going to prove anything. Even if you have (laughs) direct proof to a narcissist, it, it literally makes you
1: crazy. Let's talk about the crazy making thing.
3: Like bedtime, he wanted to go to bed early so that he could get up early and we have a six year old son. And so, you know, I would try and get bedtime going at a reasonable hour and then as soon as i would try and get bedtime going he would get invested in watching movies and say oh no we can stay up late and would allow our son to stay up with him until sometimes midnight or 1am watching like adult car shows
1: It sounds like you were spending a lot of time trying to, like, figure out what he wanted and keep him happy. Is that true?
3: Yeah, because it wasn't safe when he wasn't happy. And that was something also that he would mock me for when I would say that I didn't feel safe as the relationship crumbled at the end. He would mock me for saying I didn't feel safe because he was like, I've never hit you. Hmm. But you drive home drunk. Or sometimes you leave our house angry, drunk. So, like, I don't feel safe because you're emotionally being awful, but also because sometimes he would take our son with him. It's like, I don't feel safe knowing that you're driving right now. And then, like, after the day after he would be really awful usually was... Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I am all done drinking. I don't know why I did that to you. It's totally inappropriate. I'm going to start therapy. I found myself since then repeatedly justifying what I was doing or the requests that I was making of friends when they clearly didn't ask
1: for it or need it. And Lindsay, does any of that sound familiar?
2: It's so familiar, yes. The insidious nature of these dizzying conversations that we would have where the punchline was what Molly said or what Carissa talked about or wrote about. Like, it was always my fault. It was always a degree away from how it was my fault and how I was fear-based or self-absorbed or yes. not mindful enough. It was my fault. And, and one example yes. is that within about a year and a half, it started with two different carpenters who were working on the house and both quit because they said they couldn't deal with my ex-husband. And about six months later, the man who had been serving my Volvos for more than five years called and said, respectfully, Lindsay, I've never had to say this before we here at Volvo are no longer willing to service your cars if we ever have to speak to him. So when I talked to my ex-husband about it, he said, it's because they overcharge you. And then the last one that happened was the plowman, the dear plowman who I'd known since I was a child because he also plowed my mother's driveway. My ex-husband ran down the driveway and fired him, telling him he was doing an incompetent job And again, that was my fault, because I was somehow accepting subpar plowing. And the crumbs of the apologies that I would get every six or seven months, that is sadly what sustained me, hoping for the promise of of better behavior. But P.S., it's your fault. I tried to spend some time
4: thinking of really good examples, (laughs) Mm. but it's so hard because you ignored them all. You questioned them and you questioned him. But from what I'm hearing and from my perspective, it always got turned around. Where I think the abuse has come out even more is post-relationship. That's when really I saw all of these things because I wasn't like that when I first met him. I, I still had some confidence left, even though I had been in previous abuse. And I feel like he took that from me and I'm starting to gain it back because I had people going, why are you over explaining? I got it. Like I, you don't have to justify it. I would exhaust people (laughs) being like, what I meant was that's what you had been trained to do for so long. That seemed normal. It's hard because it was your life every day.
1: You did try to ignore it and you tried to dismiss it and you tried to say, well, maybe it's not really happening. So because of the habit of doing that, then in the end, there's not a lot you can sometimes come to because you, you so successfully were able to brush all this stuff away.
4: Right. And I think the way that they try to continue to guilt you
1: after is you, you really should just move on. Don't talk about it. That's what move on And that's more crazy making because it makes it sound like you're making too big a deal of it. Uh, You're making a big deal where there is not a big deal and it's It's you, not me. Right.
2: One thing for me that was so tremendous was talking to his ex. It was one night, he'd come home, our baby was asleep, and I called this ex that he had been singing her praises for years, and I thought, why isn't our love as easy as this love? And she said, oh honey, I was wondering when you'd call.
4: I got that too. The pattern, okay, I'm done with this one, however it ends, and then they just proceed.
1: Let's talk about the public persona.
2: My ex-husband was highlighted in the newspaper as being a local, someone that you go to in the time of need as a firefighter and an EMT. Both of (laughs) which he's very capable of doing, but the public persona was something that I would choose to, and still most often choose to be silent about. And, And one of the things that this has done for me, Patricia being involved with Finding Our Voices, is to say it it wasn't true. It it wasn't true. What happened in public was very different than what happened behind my front door. I put effort into that because I also hoped on some level that having a shining public persona would help his insecurities enough so that maybe behind the front door, he would actually be kinder. Mm -hmm. Um, Molly, I see you nodding your head too.
3: Oh, for sure. I have done a lot of supporting in that same sort of hope. I thought, like, if you could just stop drinking, maybe everything would get better. Mm. Um, and if you just stopped drinking, then I would feel comfortable leaving, because my work would be shipping out. I'd be, you know, like, maybe I'd, maybe I'd be working on tugboats down in New York Harbor, or working down in the Gulf, or who knows, but I'd be gone for you know an extended period of time and then hold you, you, an you,
1: you would have to leave your son with him is that what you mean
3: yeah i would have to leave my son with him for you know at the minimum a week and more likely three weeks to a month and i just couldn't trust that to stay safe physically But I'm starting to realize that the emotional abuse and manipulation of our son is actually the thing that is most terrifying to me.
1: Mm. Since you've left him, is it much more
3: that than it was? Since he left the house, it is much more apparent to me. The small, I guess small isn't bright, but sort of subtle manipulations and abuse of both my son and myself.
4: I also wanted to say to both of you guys, I do relate to the alcoholism from my, my marriage and um, that whole concept of maybe if they just stop drinking, everything else will get better. Maybe that's the problem. So I do, I do relate to that. The other thing, Patricia, I wrote down, if I can talk about control and how that is subtle. And so I'm thinking of my abuser looking at what I wrote, right, about saying he -hmm. controlled what I listened to for music, he controlled me swearing, he controlled my friends. I think the defense would be like, what are you talking about back on me? is you're crazy. But the way that that control happens is very manipulative because it isn't, you can't listen to that or you can't be friends with that person. But it's this subtle, psychological abuse where they judge the music you listen to. They're going to complain about it, so you avoid playing it. Because you don't want to hear the judgment on it or have it turn around on you. You like that music because this, that, and the other. That's how they control. When you're with your cougar friends, I would get, Mm. you know, you act like this. So I stopped hanging out with a lot of my friends. He didn't tell me I couldn't per se, but he still controlled it. Do you know what I mean? Like in a very subtle way that just made you back away from all of these things. Absolutely. But also, I feel like it's still control and they are completely conscious of it. And it is a tactic to make you feel bad about your friend or your music or swearing or whatever, you know, he would tell me it sounded unladylike and this and that, and maybe that's true, but I swear.
2: (laughs) One of the things that I felt, and I think what I hear you saying, is that there was like an emotional hangover for you hang out with your friends, but then you pay the price emotionally because you're going to be put down for it somehow. In our house, there was a lot of ignoring, but the emotional hangover. So you listen to that music and then you get put down enough so that it doesn't actually become worth it anymore. You hang yes. out with that friend and you're put down enough so that is it really, okay, I guess I just won't hang out with that friend. Yes. Or, and and then, then that's where you start questioning yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, I think that that's...
3: And- One of the places where, like, I was talking last time, Lindsay and Patricia and I talked about, like, not, like, looking at the power and control wheel, you know, years ago and saying, I can't really quite identify any of those things. Like, I can't really say that he's controlling my finances because he's not telling me directly. Right. Right. But he's terrible with money and spending, has outrageous credit card debt, and that's not something that I feel comfortable with. So he's controlling what I do with our money because yes. I'm not doing anything with our money because his behavior
1: feels really reckless.
2: Mm.
1: And you're supposed to be making decisions together as a couple about money. So, you know, this is something you should be able to talk about and get under control together.
4: Yeah. Yeah, my husband would do that as well.
3: I'd come home to find, oh, did we buy a four-wheeler? I didn't know that. (laughs) Or I'm gonna spend this, you know, I'm gonna spend a bunch of money on this ski vacation for us. Mm -hmm. Or I'm gonna buy you a really nice coat. I have a coat, it's perfectly serviceable. I know you don't like it but I do and now I have this nice new coat that is okay but you just spent a bunch of money on it that Mm -hmm. we don't have so then Mm -hmm. I start scaling back on other things
4: I like to shop at Goodwill who cares but (laughs) I would continually get crap from him that that was ridiculous or you know, make fun of me. Oh, how much did that cost? Three dollars. It made me feel embarrassed to shop at Goodwill. When there would be a downward cycle, you know, I felt like I was managing his moods as well. It would go with like, where's our relationship? It leaves me up in the air of whether we're in one. But I, again, I would just hang on because I don't give up and kind of go through that emotional turmoil, that's when I would get the roses sent to me at work with a a message of like, love you, we had this thing, we'd say love you. That's a whole nother subject of like, seeing that this is an exact script and pattern that the same words were used, the same little things that you thought were just yours, little like emoji things that, Oh, this is your emoji. This is mine. That, you know, just stupid little things that were charming and made me smitten. It's the game. It's the game. And then their game, they
1: have a game that works and they they do it over and over again.
4: Right. And then, you know, whenever they become sort of complacent, they're, they're kind of out there searching for the next one whilst they, they are still playing games with you and they, they let go and then they come back and they let go and come back and, for whatever reason, we continue to allow it until we get hit with that kind of rock bottom, I think. Did you ever feel any
1: stability in the relationship?
2: I felt the opposite of stability. I felt that I had to be a a stabilizing force for myself, my husband, our children, anyone who would doubt the relationship and I was trying to stand up for it to protect myself and to protect the relationship. I was a stabilizing force for them as well. (laughs) Uh, It was exhausting. My adrenals are still recovering (laughs) and it's been, we have been out of our cohabitation now for about 10 years.
3: I made my wedding bands and his and I made them in wave shape. Mm. Partially because I'm a boat person and a water person and all that, but also because our relationship was so tumultuous. Any future relationship, I'm sort of thinking of the metaphor of like, I want like a mill pond.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like quiet and still and deep. Yeah, deep, yeah. Did you ever think that the instability was passion? Was it ever presented to you that way? Oh, yeah.
3: All the time. And he actually would say that. I'm a passionate person. And then we're both passionate people.
1: Mm -hmm. Molly. So make it into a positive. Yeah.
2: I would be curious also, Carissa and even Patricia, Like, where were we when we said yes to this?
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. How about you, Lindsay? What, what, what do you feel? Do you feel you were emotionally vulnerable? Do you feel you were in a good place when you met up with this guy?
2: I was, I was in a good place. I was parenting my son. I had been single for a while. Um, if anything, I, like, I, maybe I craved some adventure, not necessarily in the form of abuse. And then it didn't come out right away. He had some great lines. And um, that's and, that whole
1: thing that Carissa was saying about the game, like he has this thing that he does.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, and for me, i a similar place, Lindsay, like I had dated a little bit, had a couple of shorter relationships between the marriage and this relationship. And I think I was in kind of a better place. I was starting to like, starting the process that I am now again, you know? Mm-hmm. And he came in and he was so present at first. You know, he's very present. He listened to what I had to say. Like, I'm gonna tell her everything she wants to hear because maybe I was more transparent than I thought, talking about what I'd been waiting for, etc. And then he used that to be like, that's me. And funny you should say adventure, because that was on the top of my list. My kids were older. I was kind of in a place where I was like, I just I want to say yes to more things. I want to, you know, get out and experience things. I got married and had kids. Quickly, when I was younger, so now's my time to kind of get out. And he really played on that too. That's how I am. I'm
1: passionate, I'm adventurous. What Molly was saying about the waves
4: yeah,
1: how these guys came in and it was really exciting. Yeah, do you think that we responded to that? Do you think that's part of what it was?
3: Oh, yeah, I think it was exciting. And I was, you know, I was 20. 4, 324 in that neighborhood. was a little old for graduating college. Yeah, I was like, I'm living my adventurous life. This is what I'm doing. I was shipping out. I was like traveling in the Caribbean and the Pacific.
2: Oh, it was all adventure. Another thing that he did was we had a fight sometime early on and it was when I was newly pregnant and I went to a close friend and I confided in her some of what was happening. Of course, she said, Oh my gosh, Lynn, this is abuse. And when I went back home, he said, You know, who did you talk to? Where were you? And I said, Well, I, I walked with Christina, you know, my best, closest friend growing up. And he said, Did you talk about me? And I said, You know, we did. And he was infuriated and said, You do not have my permission to talk about me ever. And so that set this standard, God forbid, we went to church and I chatted with the music director afterward, did you talk about me? So I walked on eggshells, I existed on
1: eggshells. Let's talk about how things get normalized.
4: To me, it just goes back to now in retrospect, like how subtly controlling it all is. It just slowly controls you the way you think the way you, yeah who you hang out with all the things it's all about
3: control um, and i see, I see and, you doing this hand gesture of making things smaller yeah, mm. your
4: world gets smaller right because your world yeah you're really just focusing your world around him i resonate with the whole either not talking to friends uh, about either one of my partners that had abuse i mean my closest friends in my marriage had no idea until the very end about it. And this narcissist relationship was me constantly defending them. My brother saw right through him. I just started to kind of shut my brother out because I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to hear what he saw or heard or how I was changing because that would make me come to this point faster and realize it was unhealthy. And then the whole X thing was really cathartic because I did end up connecting with, that was another sign. I probably should have known he had so many relationships before me that failed,
0: Mm. but I
4: so believed him that it was, it was not him, that it was them and that he was just waiting for someone, you know, like me who had more things together and they had these problems and this and that. But when I talked to the first wife, she said what you said, Lindsay, I was like, yes, the whole like. I was just waiting. Like, I didn't want to say anything because I've seen this happen before, you know, like, I've seen them all come and go. And
1: she's been watching the show. You are listening to Let's Talk About It, one of the ways our nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, is breaking the silence of intimate partner abuse all over Maine. I am Patricia McLean, host of this radio show, and the founder and president of Finding Our Voices. Now let's return to our conversation with Carissa, Molly, and Lindsay about emotional abuse.
2: I'm remarried and I've been in another relationship for about eight years. We've known each other a long time and we're good friends and we're married and I adore him. And we have, we have our moments that it's really difficult, that we're like in the dance of communication and not feeling heard and all that. And in You know, I can think of like a couple of really rough days that we've had in eight years, and I can say without a doubt that the roughest moment I have had with my husband is infinitely easier, less challenging, less stressful than the easiest, most smooth, white heat days I had with my ex-husband. And for me, that's tremendously powerful because It wasn't just that relationships are hard. It's that I was in an abusive marriage. And relationships aren't easy always, but they don't have to be abusive. And, and I think a lot of people think, oh, it's just this once, or it's just this corner of his personality, or it's his parents, or you know, he was raised, he had a hard time, all that. Relationships do not have to be abusive.
1: Mm. You know the difference because you've been, in, you're in a good one now and you were in a bad one and there's a big difference between the two.
2: There's a tremendous difference. There's a tremendous difference between how do you communicate, you know, listening to us all talk. I remember at the beginning, in the early days, I was pretty traumatized. And if we had something that went on, I would think, okay, okay, how do I? And he would come outside if I was sitting outside trying to really wrestle with it. And he would say, well, let's just talk about this. And I thought-
1: this is your present marriage. Your pre- this is my present, present marriage. marriage.
2: Yeah. And I used to say over and over, gosh, thank you. I I don't, I don't remember how to do this. Children are resilient and it is easier for a child to go through a divorce than it is for a child to go through ongoing conflict. And we're all mothers here. And I know we probably all have varying degrees of, you know, guilt is a heavy word and I hesitate to use it. I am sometimes weighed down by how I feel like I should have stepped in more between my ex-husband and my children. But the other thing that I'll say is, as we were talking about the appeal, what is the appeal for them, for us? How did it happen? And I looked at the four of us up on this little Zoom meeting and all of our faces, and I thought, wow, we're all pretty strong, astute, intelligent women. And so there is no shame in leaving an abusive relationship.
1: The shame is the abuser. The shame yeah. is abusing, the shame it, is being abusive, the shame is all on that, not on us. And right. silence doesn't serve anything except to just keep it going. Let's see for advice for people. Like, first of all, if there's a lot of people around you who are giving you warnings about that person, that's yeah. something to listen to.
2: My advice would be if you have a niggle, you're right.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: If you have a niggle, You are right.
4: They're not going to change
2: no matter what they say. You cannot love someone enough to make them change. Yes. And I I tell people I stayed for the children and ultimately I left for the children. So I stayed because we were having babies and I thought I could maybe love him enough to show him that he's safe. That was probably the most grandiose thought I've had in my adult life.
3: We'd been married for a year, and I got down to the Caribbean where he was working and sailed down there for work myself. And things were really bad down there. And then I got pregnant. And then I stayed for our son. So it was, like, every time I was, like, just about to listen to my gut, there was some crisis. It was, like, either a crisis or a, like, doubling down by him on I'm going to be better. Yeah. And I really love you.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, yeah. I, trust your gut. And...
1: Believe the actions, not the words. Don't believe the words. You get pulled in deep and it's hard to get out.
3: It's so hard to get out. Basically, get out as soon as you can.
1: That's a good <laughs> advice. That yeah. is. Get advice. the f out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's you are listening to Carissa, Molly, and Lindsay. Carissa's Domestic Abuse Awareness Banner is one of 27 touring the state, downtown to downtown, a month at a time. Her banner portrait, in, amongst other downtown businesses, Sherman's Books of Bar Harbor, shows her holding a glass container filled with sea glass and heart rocks that he presented her with, and her quote on the banner is, Beachcombing was part of his game. I would like to share some exciting news with you today. Camden National Bank has just come on as lead sponsor of our Let's Talk About It window banners all around the state. This is going to help us reach every community in Maine with our messages, You Are Not Alone, It Happens to Everyone and Everywhere, We Got Out and You Can Too, and There Are All Kinds of Valid Reasons Why We Are Pulled In and Why We Stay. It's Complicated. The voices of the 27 women from all over Maine who are on these banners are on our findingourvoices.net website. I would like to play the audio clips for some of these women right now. Mel is the owner of Fresh Off the Farm in Rockport. I was a customer for 30 years when, as she was checking me out, she said, I've been there. She has helped a lot of women who have sought her out in her store since she began appearing on our banners. The quote on her banner reads, I survived, and you can too.
5: He had two small children that I had raised for the four years, roughly four years we were together. I knew they weren't safe if I was not present, and I would have given my life to make them safe. He trapped me in the house for 15 hours, he ripped all of the phones out of the walls, and He hid the car keys and he trashed the house. When he was not looking, I stole the car keys that he had hidden um, and I shoved them in my pants and and he came around the corner and he was just hollow and vacant. And he looked at me and he said, so do you think that tonight's the night you're going to die? And I pulled the keys out and I said, not tonight, mother. And I bolted out the door and he came after me. So I drove to a friend's house. When I got there, my friend's mother, who I had known for a huge chunk of my life, I got there covered in blood, vomit, and spit. And she called the police. I begged her not to, but she did anyway. So when we drove back, um, there were four Knox County Sheriff Cruisers sitting in my driveway. I was relieved and terrified. Uh, I knew that i was safe for the time being what were they doing to him what was going to happen was he going to be okay i was not a cop caller i didn't want it to be in the papers i didn't want people to know he ended up committing suicide in 2003. he was gone his kids were gone everything that i knew as family or everyday life was gone so it was a lot of partying and making poor decisions and i started dating Um, a guy who is just a real jerk. He was drunk, he was angry, um, and he choked me against a wall and put a load of 45 to my head. I started doing Reiki and um, craniosacral meditation. It was literally like a light switch went on and I said, what in the hell am I doing? So I set a standard for myself and I learned that that doesn't make me selfish or prissy it just makes me love myself enough that I won't allow that bull to happen to me again I have an 11 month old son now and I have a really great husband I have a lot of employees um, and I make sure that if I see them in an unsafe situation or they come to me and and share something with me I have absolutely no qualms about sharing my past with them sometimes it's been nothing more than you deserve better But even in high school, like, if girls start to see people, no, you can't go hang out with those people, no, tonight, it's just you, well, I can't hang out with you tonight, so you can't hang out with anyone, Mm -mm. you should run away.
1: Meg was my neighbor for most of the 30 years I lived in my marital home in Camden. She's an architect and designed the addition to the Camden Public Library that hosted our launch exhibit of Finding Our Voices. The quote on her banner reads, I didn't tell anyone because I was embarrassed.
6: I remember it vividly. It was a college boyfriend. We met because we were both in Shakespeare production together. And I was a freshman, I didn't know anybody. And he was a poet, and he was seemed charming everything was fine for a while and then it was like that line was crossed and he could tell me what to do and how to spend my time and who to spend it with i was going to get grief for whatever i was doing and so i would have to like maybe make up a story and i didn't like that feeling a feeling like i would need to cover for myself for something that really was normal behavior for a 19 year old He would smash and break things, but he had that kind of smashy personality. It was sort of shockingly violent. And he would drink. And when he got to a certain point in drinking, he became quite verbally abusive and angry and would threaten suicide. And so I was in a place where i was like okay i'll do what you say because i don't want you to kill yourself because then it would be my fault i i was raised in a very waspy environment and so i was always taught to control my emotions you could be angry but you couldn't fly off the handle that was considered unacceptable behavior and so when i was dealing with someone who was essentially raging in my face I did not know how to address it and I would freeze like a rabbit and that would just make him angrier because he wanted a fight. The one time he was really physically abusive as opposed to emotionally abusive was he grabbed me by the throat and he threw me down on the bed and he started to throttle me and I started to black out. Then after that, that I really realized that he had the capability of not just yelling at me, but the capability of killing me, perhaps, that I wanted to get out of this relationship. But I knew it would be dangerous to do that. And I had to bide my time. It was probably a whole nother year. Um, my roommate didn't know. Um, my, none of my college friends, my parents, my sister, nobody knew. Um, that this was going on, because I was embarrassed. What, what really ticks me off is when there, I read about an incident of domestic violence, and then I hear people say, oh, why didn't she just leave him? And they're like, blame the woman. And I think they have no idea how hard it is to extricate yourself from a situation like that. And Here I was, I had in some ways all kinds of support systems and I didn't have kids, I wasn't financially beholden to this guy and yet I was still afraid to get out of the relationship because of the potential violence that my leaving would create.
1: Megan is a wonderful artist. She is one of the women on banners who will be in Eastport July 25th for a day long art walk and community conversation Next Step Domestic Abuse Agency is partnering with us. They serve Hancock and Washington counties. And Joan Loudon and Jean Hickok are the amazing women from Eastport who pulled this all together. The quote on Megan's banner reads, When the children came, it got a lot worse.
7: It was like a whirlwind. He had so much knowledge. I could listen to him for hours. I was kind of in awe. I was... 23 at the time, and he was um 49. He took me down to Florida where I went to college, and we went down for three weeks. I was on the cell phone. He bought me, um, too long, and I went to go walk away from him when he was yelling at me, and he grabbed my arm really hard and left bruises. I just thought it was like an isolated event, and we got back and he bought me a Mustang, and. And he's like, I want to have a family with you. The abuse started getting a lot worse when the kids came along. He's thrown a full beer and a cordless phone at my face when I was holding my youngest. And I had blood all over me and her. He threw me into a wall and choked me. He's broken my wrist. I've left five times. He would prove that he had changed or, you know, or we'd have nowhere else to go. and we'd end up going home. He would tell me consistently that he he wouldn't marry me because he wouldn't want to give me anything. So if I left, I'd have nothing. I had to leave with the things on my back. It was pretty scary, especially because I had never had a checkbook. I went from my parents' house to college to his house. He'd like even lined us up once, me and the kids and gave us each five bucks. And if I needed gas money, he'd write out the check to what gas station and for how much it was. I lived with them for 13 years my counselor said where do you draw the line and um i said if he ever hurt one of the kids and one night my youngest came in between us and he ended up punching her um, and he paused for a split second and looked at me and i was like do you realize what you just did and i picked up the phone and called 911 for the first time my dad and mom are both artists when i got into college um i met a bunch of artists and we'd hang out in studios and just to do artwork all night and then when i met him it made art just something that i couldn't even have in my life which took away everything because it's who i am we had a barn and um the top half was converted into a studio he said that he built it for me but um I wasn't allowed to use it. It was really sad artwork. And now that I find that I've, you know, been growing and kind of coming out of this, it's just amazing, because it's not just the sadness anymore. It's joy, happiness, sadness, excitement. It's like I feel like I have more of a range. I can just, I feel like I'm able to express everything now. <laughs> I feel like I like, can be myself.
6: I haven't been able to be myself for like a third of my life.
1: And here is Mary Lou. Mary Lou is 80. We talk almost every morning. She is a huge inspiration to me for her sunny spirit and for how nothing stops her when it comes to helping others avoid what she went through. She will also be in Eastport with us on July 25th, driving by herself all the way from Scarborough. The quote on her banner reads, it's never too late to leave.
8: They were never threats, it was just immediate actions. And the fact, you know, the unsuspecting, like a Thanksgiving dinner, his family was coming and I did something and I had a black eye. And, and I had to kind of proceed with having 26 people for Thanksgiving dinner or taking my son to get a, a jacket and when we asked him to, if we could do that, I got a black eye. So it was spontaneous. It was There was never any, like, warning that it was coming, the, the physical abuse. The barometer we, and the question we would ask, what kind of a mood is Dad in today? And then I always call it that we did the dance of domestic violence. Okay, so Dad's in a good mood, so we may be going somewhere. Dad's in a bad mood We're he's going to stay in bed most of the morning, and we're going to wait until he says it's time for us to do anything. The public place and the private place was happening all the time in in our marriage with the kids. We would have people coming in the driveway and we'd have had a fight and I'd been crying. And he would then say to me, Mary Lou, do you love me? And I would say, yes. And they'd be getting out of the car. So these are your friends, you know, I, I don't have to be nice to them. And then just like that, they'd walk in the door Give you all smiles and no one would have suspected. That became the vocal point of our life, that whole keeping the image. And I'm not sure psych, you know, subconsciously or consciously. But we walked out of the house and we were four perfect little kids and in our careers, I would drive to school crying. And then by the time I'd get into my classroom, I'd feel a peace and the, the I was respected and loved. I was an excellent first grade teacher, and I loved it. And I would do innovative things, and and I'd come home and tell him, and he said, say, wait till they find out what a fake and a fraud you are. And it was like I had a big bouquet of balloons that someone just took a pin and popped them all. Denial is a sedative for traumatic experiences. So you you live in denial, you hope that it's not going to happen again, or that you just move on, I mean, that I could smile and entertain people after I'd been three days of living hell on earth before they came. So denial, I think, get, goes right along with c- control and fear, um, denying that, you know, it's going to get better, you know, and it didn't really happen that way, and or just forget it and then wipe it out. And so some of the things I can't remember because I just blacked them out and moved on. I had to, you know, live my life. He always said to me you could never leave me and I and he said because number 1 you you have a lousy retirement you don't have any health insurance and you don't have any family. The pain was so bad that I wanted to to kill myself to to, to end my life and end the pain and praise God I knew I had more living to do. And I I didn't but again he took that situation and and me and my last hope of saying Maybe he'll understand how how bad I am feeling and told him I had attempted suicide. And he said, he went and got a gun. And he said, I'll show you how to put a gun to your head and be successful committing suicide. And I still hear the, the cylinders from that situation.
1: Because I mentioned red flags earlier, I would like to list now some of them. One or two doesn't mean he or she is abusive or dangerous, But even with one or two, pay attention. Also, someone can present as perfect for a long time. So just because there are no red flags early on, keep your ears and eyes open. If anyone has any other red flags to add to this list, contact me at hello at findingourvoices.net. 1. Sweeps you off your feet. 2. Moves quickly to seal the deal. 3. Has bad things to say about ex-wives and ex-girlfriends. 4. Hates his mother. 5. Holds grudges against a lot of people. 6. Has no friends and is estranged from family members. 7. Doesn't like your family or friends. 8. Your friends and family don't like him. 9. There is a strong imbalance between you and this person with money, age, education. 10. He lies. More pieces of advice. They don't change. If he hits you once, he will hit you again. It only gets worse. If you think something is wrong, something is. If you have doubts, call your domestic abuse agency. They will help you to figure it out, and if you want to leave, they will help you do so safely. Talk to the exes. They know. If you want to bring the downtown window banners featuring Carissa, who you heard on this episode, and 26 and counting other Maine survivors of intimate partner abuse aged 18 to 80 to your downtown, if you have a comment or question for me or any of the women whose voices you just heard, if you want to make a donation to our nonprofit and help us break the silence of domestic abuse in Maine, contact me through our website, findingourvoices.net. And if what we are talking about sounds familiar, if you have an intimate partner who makes you afraid and controls what you say and do, if you have a friend or family member you suspect is going through this and want to know what you can do to keep them safe, call your local domestic abuse hotline. The victim advocates who take the calls believe you and understand it. In Maine, that number is one 834 4357 The national hotline number is 800-799-7233. The Finding Our Voices Sisterhood of Survivors is at findingourvoices.net. And remember, love should feel good. Here is where the exit music for this radio show usually comes in. But this week, I want to tell you about this music. Nora Willauer is an extraordinary cellist. And she and I wrote Just a Bully together, based on my experience, through the Songs of Me Too project that is part of Documentary Songwriters Bearing Witness through Music. Nora is now the executive director of this nonprofit organization, Documentary Songwriters. I photographed Nora with roses when she was about 10 years old for a flower girl series of photographs that paired young girls with flowers from my gardens that were my safe and healing place during most of my abusive 29-year marriage. Nora contacted me about collaborating with her on a song about this domestic abuse that she read about in the newspapers four years ago. And it is very special that this song is now the theme song for a radio show that's all about helping victims of domestic abuse to safely leave and heal. Here is Just a Bully in its entirety.
0: You swept me off my feet You erased my history. You took all of up with you, you're a bully, you're just a bully, I was scared you'd leave me, I was afraid you'd kill me, I tied myself in knots because I knew what you could do. You're a bully, you're just a bully, and when I walk in town I keep my head down I wear a mask to cover my bruises, I do what I can to keep